Hi everyone, this is Deborah Driggs, and I'm here with Rick Flynn, and you don't want to miss the show. You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn Presents... Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome on in. What a fun show we're going to have today, as I am very happy to have with me the cover girl and the centerfold for Playboy, who went on to become a very strong woman and help out other women to become strong women and not be disheartened by the fact that Deborah Driggs, you can't be a cover girl forever, can you? Great intro. Hi, everyone. Yes. No, you cannot be a cover girl forever. Although I really try very hard every day to get back on a cover. (laughs) No, you know what? You're a brunette. That's the first thing. What about this nonsense that only blondes have more fun? Are you going to? Is that true? No, absolutely not. No, I, I I beg to differ. No, we brunettes have quite a bit of fun, and um, I wouldn't trade the color of my hair any day. I love being a brunette. And you're still attractive right now to this very day. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I have a saying. My quote is, aging gracefully is a full-time job. And that it is, really. I mean, it's, it's, it is. It's a full-time job. You know, it's, it's not just on the outside. It's what you put in the body, you know. And, and so I've worked really hard throughout the years to age gracefully. Well, let me tell you this. You also, unlike a lot of other women in your position, you're thin still, just like you were when you were the cover girl. You've not really put on a whole lot of weight at all, if any. What is your secret there? Are you working out or do you just have those kind of good genes? What is the secret? I think it's a combination. You know, I, I definitely was blessed with good genes, but, you know, I do yoga on a regular basis. I in Back in 2013, I actually got certified as a yoga instructor. And it's so funny because I went through the whole process thinking, oh, I'm going to get in the best shape of my life. And yoga really had more to do with meditation. And <laughs> it was completely opposite of what I thought I was going in for. But, you know, I, I practice yoga and I love to hike. I love to be in nature and I love to go on my walks. And I, I definitely have toned down my workout as I get older, just because I think I go with the way the body goes. You know, my body is different. You know, it's different and it handles things differently now. So I take it easy and just do things that my body enjoys. And it really enjoys yoga and stretching and walking and hiking. And those are all the things that are so good, you know. Anything outside, right, where you can be out in the sun getting vitamin D. Well, in California, which is where you are, you can do that a lot with a lot more frequency than you can (laughs) when there's snow and ice on the ground in the state of Ohio, you know. Yeah, this is true. We are a little spoiled here in California with this year-round beautiful weather. Before anybody (laughs) wants to type me out any emails or wants to send me any letters, let me just say, you know, oh, he's got the centerfold. Oh, he's got the Playboy cover girl. Oh, what's the matter with him? Blah, blah, blah. But you know something, Deborah Driggs, do you notice that not one person ever complained. And when Burt Reynolds was hired by Helen Gurley Brown for her Cosmopolitan magazine back in 1972, you remember when he was the centerfold on that bear rug? Of course I do. It was awesome. I love that. I, that's a great memory. I totally remember that. I think, too, that Bert, was it Bert that was the, now this is terrible that I don't know this, but I think he was the first person to ever 
ever be on the cover of Playboy magazine. You mean the first male to be on Playboy's cover? Yeah, there's only been a few. And oh, I don't way, know. I, that I Donald, don't know. Donald Trump is on the cover of my issue. So now my issue is a collector's item. So thank you, Mr. President. <laughs> now, wait, is that the issue where you were the centerfold? Yes. Now, I have the issue, the the print out from it, that was where you were the cover girl wearing a football jersey. That was that not was, the inch. That was the next month's, wasn't it? Correct. So that you went from month. centerfold in uh, March to cover girl in April. Yes. Now, how did that happen one after another? Was that just happenstance and luck, or did they plan you know, it that you way? you have to be a really special person to get back-to-back exposure like that. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you Usually, they would put you on as a centerfold, and then a year later, they may put you back on the cover. Yeah. You know, I just, God, it just all worked out for me. I'll tell you what. Did you know yeah, you yeah. Hefner personally? Of course. How, of how course. did you, you got Hef. along with I him? I loved Hef. Oh, my God, yes. Loved Hef. Did he you live just, at the Playboy Mansion ever, either one of them? Well, because I'm a Southern California girl and I lived in L.A., I did not live at the mansion. It, that was really for the girls that came in from other parts of the United States or other parts of the world. They would come in and stay at the mansion while they were shooting. He had a beautiful section at the mansion that was, you know, kind of like the bunny section and, um, you know, nice rooms for the girls to stay. So I didn't get that experience because I'm a Southern California girl and I live here. So, but I've been to the mansion many times and, and adored him. Right now you're from Oakland, right? Oakland, California. I'm not from there. I was born there. My dad was in the Marines and there he was at Treasure Island. I guess it was Treasure Island Marine Base. And so I was born in the na in the Naval Hospital, I guess, there in Oakland. And then a year later when he was he finished his four years, they moved to Torrance. California when I was a year old. So really, I'm from the South Bay area. Okay. And you graduated from Losinger High School in Hawthorne, California. That? I know nothing yep. about it. Was it, <laughs> were there a lot of celebrities there in that school? No, no. Losinger is on Rosecrans and Prairie in Hawthorne. And, you know, back during that time, that wasn't such a great neighborhood, not a real safe neighborhood. Um, but the history of Losinger high school is in 1932 Olympics were held at that high school. And so because of that, we were the Losinger Olympians. Oh, now you married an Olympian, didn't you? Isn't that just see how the word world just works? <laughs> just, yes. Do you see this pattern happening right now? Oh, you yes. got married you in 1992. You got married to the first Olympic athlete ever to score a perfect 10. Am I right? You are correct. He was the number one gymnast going. He was the world champion going into the 1984 Olympics. And in the Olympics, he won four medals, a gold, a silver, and two bronze. And to this day, he has two or three tricks named after him. But yeah, he will go down in history as one of the greatest gymnasts of all time. Right. And what was his name? Mitch Gaylord. All righty. Now, in 2004, you and Mr. Gaylord there, you got divorced and you've been very straightforward with that. Have you been able to maintain a friendship with him or no? No, unfortunately. You know what I say is it's okay. It, the good news is and what I'm super grateful for is that we have three exceptionally beautiful, bright, very giving children. And, you know, I could ask for nothing more. Has he been that. a good daddy to the kids? Oh, absolutely. Well, then absolutely. He, he's not he's not half bad in, in every way. Then is he was a no. good dad. You can't can't no, complain you about know, it. Can't, no. And, you know, 
things just didn't work out. And, you know, I always say that it's never a lack of love. You know, I mean, we re- I really loved Mitch when we were married and, and it wasn't for a lack of love. You know, I think things, life just creeped up and things just happen. And, you know, I really just, when I think back on my part of it, you know, I just wasn't, I was not really prepared for for what marriage really entailed. And it's taken me a long time to kind of figure that out. And, you know, I've spent the last, gosh, four years now really looking at at that and what that entails. Like you can have success in all areas of your life, except for maybe one. And so for some people that could be maybe, the you know, their body, their physical you know, or maybe it's for some people, their spiritual life. For me, it was my relationship life. I really needed to work on that. And so, so yeah, so, you know, uh, you, we never know what life is holding out for us, do we, you know? No, that's, that's very true. And you do have three, three children at home. There came a point in your life. Well, they're not at home anymore. Oh, they're grown <laughs> they're and gone. Home. They're adults. They're gone. They have their own lives now. (laughs) Man, alive. And you gave birth to those three children or they were adopted? No, I I gave birth. And did you gain weight when you did that? You know, not really. I I really, I think I gained around 20 pounds on average of all three. So I had very successful pregnancies and very successful births. And I feel super grateful for that because I know there's a lot of women that that's not their experience, but I was very fortunate and it just was very easy for me. And after the births, I lost the weight pretty quickly and you know, it was just, it was just a very easy process for me. I, I actually really enjoyed being pregnant. Well, I'll be darned. Now you have men, I'll bet you still, uh, whistling, coming on to you uh, uh, and making their moves at your age. Am I right? Uh, that's just a broad <laughs> guess. I've seen your current picture I, today. I You're very attractive. Thank you. I, I would have to say probably more now than when I actually did Playboy. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Well, let me tell you. It must be that older woman thing. I don't know. But Mm, mm, you know what I really believe it is? I think as as we get older, we just get more secure with ourselves. We know if I knew in my 20s what I know now, I would have been a I would have just been on fire in my 20s. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I'll tell you what, when you were young, when you were a cover girl, you might as well say you were on fire. You looked very good. Oh, red hot, red hot. I know I'm not the first person to ask you this question, even though I don't know what in the world other people have asked you. But in 1981, on October 26, 1981, to be exact, there was an act out of Boston, Massachusetts. They had a DJ that was just like me, but he ceased and desisted from working on the radio because he got a chance to sing the lead with a group out there out of Boston. And he sang, my blood runs cold. My memory has just been sold. And do you know what else he said about his angel? She was a centerfold. He said, my angel is the centerfold. (laughs) (laughs) Has anybody ever quoted and said, oh, you're my angel. You're the centerfold. How many times in life am I the first person, Deborah Driggs, that has ever said that to you? You are the first. Really? You are the first. Oh, Lord Almighty. Oh, my, my. I, I think it's been I sad. like this woman, I, ladies and gentlemen. I love this. <laughs> We're going to have her back often. <laughs> that was a number one record. The world heard that record, Deborah. That was a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. That song was heard and sung by millions of people. Uh, yep, you are correct on that one. I remember it. I was a junior in high school. Yes, my blood runs cold. My memory has just been sold. My angel is the centerfold. I find it to be rather 
mm, almost prejudicial in a way that they'll say, oh, look at her. She's the centerfold. Oh, look at her. Work for Playboy. Oh, look at her. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. And whatever else they're going to say as they dish up the dirt. But you know, when Burt Reynolds did it in Cosmopolitan, oh, they blushed and their cheeks got red. And oh, look at Burt. Oh, isn't that cute? And you know what? They never said a bad word about him. Never. No. Never. Not about Bert. Oh, no, really. Never really. about Bert Reynolds. Oh what is, God. is this a sexist is, society we've Bert got here? An angel. That's right. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, that maybe maybe a woman can sing that song. Yeah. Lonnie Anderson. My memory has just been sold. My angel is the centerfold. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's Deborah Driggs, Playboy Centerfold 1990, Cover Girl, the next month in 1990 as well. And you started out as a young girl. You wanted to be an ice skater, a professional ice skater but that never materialized. Now, why was that? Well, you know, yes, that was my first love, the ice. Oh my God, I loved everything about skating, everything about it. You know, what happened is my parents ended up getting a divorce when I was 14. And, you know, my mom worked two jobs so that I could skate and all her money went towards my skating. It's an expensive sport. We weren't rich. We were maybe not middle class, but maybe a little below that. We weren't, we didn't have a lot of money. Although growing up, I did not know that by the way, I thought we were, I thought we were just like everybody else, you know? And so I never had any, I just always felt kind of secure in that. And I never knew that we were poor, but my mom's money, all of it went towards my skating and my dance lessons and my jump classes and my ballet on ice classes and all of it. And, you know, the costumes. And I had two pair of skates because back then I had to do figures. And when they got divorced, that was it financially, really. And so she didn't leave with a a big marriage settlement. There was no money. And so, you know, now she has two kids to support and no money, really. And so that was it. So I had to endure two deaths, so to speak, the death of my ice skating and the death of my parents' marriage. And it was really, I remember 13, 14 years old, those two years being just probably in my childhood, the hardest years. You you said that you were a latchkey kid. Yeah, I was. And that means you would come home from school (laughs) and the house would be empty? It was. Yep. Did that affect you? I would have. Oh, good. Yeah. You know, I have, I had a lot of abandonment issues. I'd come home and it would be so quiet. And that is really fearful for a kid. You know, I can remember that feeling of, you know, I had the key around my neck so I wouldn't lose it. And I was in second and third grade, you know, and I'd walk home from school and open the door and there's no sound. You know, you walk into an empty, empty apartment and as a kid, you know, that's, I remember I had a routine. I would walk into the apartment and check every room, look in the closets. I was scared, you know, just making sure nobody was in the apartment. I don't know why I was doing that, (laughs) but I don't know what I thought I was going to do as a kid, you know, to protect myself. But I just would like look in all the spaces because it just felt weird to me as a kid. And it's funny looking back because when you have kids, I could never imagine my kids coming home with a key around their neck, you know, and going into an empty house or an empty apartment. I just can't imagine that for them. But it's just how it was. I wasn't the only one. You know, I'm not unique. There's, you know, a lot of people that that's just what we did, you know, because both parents had to work. Well, you, despite having no money, you ended up going to college. And not only did you go to college, you became the homecoming queen. And you also were a cheerleader in college. Oh, I went to junior college. Let's just be very. (laughs) Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I don't I don't have the college name you went to. Yeah. So I listen, 
I barely graduated high school because I I worked full time while I went to high school. And so I just kind of showed up when I wanted to, especially my senior year, because I turned 18 in December and I could write my own notes. I could say, I'm not coming to school today because I'm going <laughs> surfing, you know? Oh, my. I mean, it just got too, it just got too crazy. And so I barely graduated. I graduated literally the class that I had to pass to graduate gave me a D minus. They just wanted me out of there. They put you <laughs> out of there. Oh, for goodness sake. All so right. I went to a so I went to a junior college and yes. I tried out for the song leading squad and I'll never forget, you know, I made the squad and the, the woman who ran the program, Betty Shear called me into her office and she said, I just got your transcript, your grades, and you can't be on the squad because you don't have good grades and you have to have at least a C plus average, you know, whatever that was, 3.0 or whatever. And I said, well, put me on probation. And she just looked at me like, what? And I said, put me on probation. I said, if I don't get good grades the first semester of college, then you can kick me off the squad. But I said, I will get good grades. And I made the dean's list because I applied myself and I had purpose and somebody cared. You know, when I was in high school, nobody cared what my grades were or what I did. But this woman was going to kick me off the song leading squad and that just was not going to happen. You know, I just looked at her and I said, no, I, I, I really want to do this. And and, you know, I'll be on probation if anything. So um, I ended up, like I said, on the dean's list. I did. I won homecoming queen and made a whole new group of friends because my junior college was down in Orange County and I went to high school in LA. So I was in a whole different world from the high school years. You were also a cheerleader for the United States Football League. Is that correct? I was. So yeah. So what happened was they put an ad in the paper saying that they were having the that they were going to have a new football league and that the LA team was going to be the LA Express and they were going to hold the cheerleading tryouts at the Hollywood Palladium. And I asked one of the girls that was on my squad in college. Penny. And I said, Penny, we got to go and try out. She's like, let's do it. So we drive to LA. We show up at the Hollywood Palladium and there were a thousand girls there to try out. I couldn't believe it. And so what they did for the first tryout was at the Hollywood Palladium, they had us on one side of the room and you had two minutes and you, they had the panel of judges and you ran out to the middle of the judges. You had two minutes to woo them, basically do a little dance and then run off. And so my routine ended up on all the news that night. And so I made that first cut. And there were three different cuts. Paula Abdul was at the second cut, and she taught us a routine that we had to do in front of the judges. And I made that cut. And then the final cut was at the Red Onion. I'll never forget this. At the Red Onion and Marina Del Rey, they closed it down and they had the last try out there. And both Penny and I made the squad. We were the youngest on the squad. We were both 19 and we both had braces and we did not look like professional cheerleaders. And we couldn't believe that we that we made the squad. We were like the two babies on the squad, you know, because when you think of professional cheerleaders, they're very voluptuous, big hair, you know, just big, big personalities. And we were these two little girls from Saddleback College with braces. And yeah, we both made it because this uh, LA Express, they really chose dancers for the squad. And, and so it was more of a dance squad than a cheerleading squad. So it was really, it was such a fun, that was really the start for me as far as really wanting to be in the entertainment world, because we did so many morning shows and radio shows, and we did promotions to promote the USFL and LA Express. And so we were everywhere. And, and I thought, I love this life. This is great. Like I could do this. And, and that's when I thought I really want to do commercials and, and do all, do all this. So yeah, it was, it really opened the door to, to that world. You later went on and played Elizabeth Taylor in a Mazda commercial. How did that happen? Yes. Yes. Well, I had, I had already done quite a few commercials at that point, but that one stood out because it played over and over and over again. And, and you know how sometimes commercial catchphrases, people will say them, right? Where's the you beef? Know? Yes. And so mine was, um, we're trying to sell cars, you know, and it just <laughs> okay. was like, 
And it just with that accent. And so and they played that commercial quite a bit. So it was it was one of one of the commercials that I did that stood out. But yeah, I had done quite a few commercials at that point. And, you know, I had gone to Mexico City to shoot commercials. I did Chrysler, BMW, Mazda. I had done a ton of commercials for Japan and beer commercials, what have you. So yeah, so that one definitely stood out though. Do you think that the time that you spent in college cheering and getting the attention from the audience led you to, and that that desire to do more and more of the show business type activities, did that lead you to some type of an audition where you were able to try out for Playboy or did they come to you and ask you, how did that happen? Yeah, it's a really, it's interesting because at that time, Playboy was the number one magazine in the world. And I didn't know this, but when I when I started to shoot my centerfold, and I'll get back to how I got into Playboy, but I remember asking them, how many girls want to be, you know, or I asked them how many submissions they get. And the girl that was doing my makeup said, Deborah, they get over a thousand submissions a day. Oh, like I believe a, that. I believe yeah, it. They had a, they had just a team of interns that would sit and open envelopes of photos that would be sent. And then you had those interns weeding out the photo, you know, and I just thought, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. So how I ended up in Playboy is I had an agent. I had already been doing commercials and modeling. I was with an agent, Mary Webb Davis. And my agent called me and said that Playboy was coming out with a book called The Lingerie Book and that they wanted to have me come in to audition for the cover of the book. It was a new book. And I said, oh, well, is there any nudity involved? And she said, I don't think so. It's for the cover. So, I mean, there might be a little, but not not full nudity. And so I said, okay, you know, and I had done quite a few swimsuit campaigns at this point. So, and they, when they got my Z card, you know, a couple of my ads were on that. So they kind of knew who I was a little bit, but not really. And so, but they liked my look at that time in 1989, they were really looking for brunettes. So it's funny that you mentioned the color of my hair at the beginning of the show, because in 1989, Playboy was really looking for brunettes. They had so many women that were blonde um, submitting to be in the magazine, but not a lot of brunettes for some reason. So when I went to audition for the cover, they asked me to go change and gave me a robe. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm not here for that. I'm here for the lingerie cover book. And they said, well, everything we do has nudity. So we need you to change so we can see your body. So I went and changed, but I left my undergarments on. And because also back then, and I'm really aging myself, but they were looking for scars, tattoos, piercings. Um, Those are considered flaws in that industry. Well, back then, now they're embraced. But right. back then, back then, back of, then they were yeah. a no-no. Yeah. So back then it was, you know, they weren't, they weren't, you weren't getting hired if you had tattoos in 1989. Not really, not a lot. So, so they wanted to make sure and they wanted to see your whole body. So I came out and I had my undergarments on and the photographer said to me, oh, we need to see your whole body, honey. And I said, oh, I'm not here for that. I'm here for the cover of the lingerie book. And he said, everything we do here has some type of nudity. So I said, well, I'm, I'm not going to take off my undergarments. You know, so now I'm being difficult, right? <laughs> Definitely. So, so I get dressed, I leave, and I think, okay, that was weird. That was a setup. They just they didn't want me for anything. So I call my agent. She's like, You're not gonna believe this, but they want to shoot you to be a centerfold. And I just kind of laughed because I never saw myself that way. And I said, Me? Literally, I was like, Me? Really? And she said, yeah, they love your look and they want to start shooting you and they want to do a test immediately. And so, you know, I kind of called a few people in the business that I knew and I had a manager at the time and I asked him and he's like, Deborah, it's the number one magazine in the world. And it was at the time. And he said, you got to do it. It's huge. And back then, a lot of celebrities were, it was kind of giving them a jumpstart in their career. So, you know, you had Kim Basinger and Sharon Stone, and you had all these really hot actresses doing pictorials in the magazine. And so he's like, you got to do it. And so I went in, I did a test and they said, yes, we're going to shoot a centerfold. And I shot from, God, I want to say August to September. I shot for about six weeks. It's a long, long process. 
and uh, Hef saw my gatefold and said, she's going to be Miss March. That was all she wrote. And so after I was done shooting, they had me go to the, uh, back then they had a Playmate promotion department at the very uh, ninth floor of the Playboy building. And they had people that all they did was, you know, send us out on promotions. And so before your issue came out, they would have you do radio shows and send you all over the U.S. to kind of promote the fact that you were going to be the upcoming playmate. And so because of my acting and modeling background, and I already had an agent, they got a call from the Oprah Winfrey show asking if the centerfold could come on the show to do the Valentine's Day special. And that was me that month. And so they had me do the Oprah Winfrey show. I got cast to do the Bob Hope special. I mean, it just, it was nonstop stuff that was coming my way. It was, you know, all of a sudden the floodgates kind of opened. And I remember I did Oprah, I did the Bob Hope special. And then I got a call from Richard Shankman at the Playboy channel. And he said, we're starting Hot Rocks for the Playboy channel. And basically it's going to be a music video show that's going to show all the videos that MTV and VH1 will not allow. And this is crazy because back then this really was the way it was. Now it's now you could show anything. But so we were going to show all the racy music videos. And he said, we want you to be the VJ. So he had VJ, me come in. Video jock, the jock on TV that plays the video songs. That was me. And so next thing I know, we're in USA Today and I'm being featured as the new VJ for Hot Rocks and it's getting a ton of press and we're shooting, you know, low budget. Like, and I did, God, I think we did three to four shows a week. And it's funny when I look at the shows, the old shows, they're so, they're so bad, but you know, you can see the progression, how they start to get better and better. How we got, there was no, there was no sex in those, those videos. In fact, was there even nudity in those videos? I would guess probably not unless it was back. Was it a back shot or was there actual nudity in those music videos? No, It wasn't that there was nudity, but there, there were lyrics that they would not play on VH1 and and so like uh, I, we did a Red Hot Chili Pepper. There was a video. I remember that the language, it was the language. And then there was, um, you know, yeah, th- th- there were some that had sexual content. But, you know, it just it was too risque for VH1 and too risque for MTV. And so anybody that put out a music video that, that they wanted exposure, they'd come to us and say, could you play it? And we did. So that was a fun gig, you know, for me, because I didn't know anything about being a VJ and I had to learn on the spot. (laughs) Right. Now, I remember blonde uh, Jenny McCarthy was doing that type of a gig. She was a VJ as well. She took over my show. Oh, she took over from your show. Yeah. Well, for for Hot Rocks. Yeah, because I, I got cast in a movie. And so they started using Jenny. For Hot Rock. Right. And she's on Sirius XM right now, if, if I'm not oh, mistaken. She's had a phenomenal career. Yeah, yes, she has. Like, yes, she has. And yeah, did you a, know Jenny or no? Oh, yeah. No, I love Jenny. I mean, you know, we haven't seen each other in years. I actually saw her. Last time I saw her, we had a drink together at Boa Steakhouse in L.A. probably in 2012 was the last time I saw her. No, she's right. a sweetheart. I was going to get involved because, you know, she raises a lot of money for autism because her son, because of her son. And so we, I was going to help raise money for that. So yeah, no, she's a sweetheart. She was always really sweet and fun to work with. Now, somebody told me you work with actor Mickey Rourke. Is that true? I did a commercial for Suntory Whiskey in Japan. It was, uh, you know, Sun, Suntory Whiskey. So I got cast to do a commercial with him for Suntory Whiskey. Yeah. And how so did worked- that turn out? Amazing. You know, I, that was way before Playboy, actually. I did that commercial in 1987 or 88. I didn't know he was going to be in the, I didn't know. They cast me because the girl, they had to do some pickup shots because the girl that was actually the lead in the commercial, she was the French actress that was in the movie Breathless. I can't think of her name right now. She didn't want to continue to do the, so I had to do the scene where I'm standing in the rain. Oh my. I did do these pickup shots. And so I spent two days on the set working 
working with McKeon. Yeah, he is a great guy. I ran into him a few years ago in Beverly Hills and I told him, I said, hey, I, you're not going to believe this, but we did a commercial in the 80s for Suntory Whiskey. And he was like, oh my God, that's crazy. And I'm like, I know. But yeah, he was, he was really nice. So yeah, we kind of went way back. Before we move on, because I want to get how you've helped other women to become stronger, and we're going to get to that, but I want to touch upon your relationship you had with the man that is a billionaire with a B, and he owns all the Virgin and all this and that. He also promoted records. He promoted Janet Jackson. He promoted Mariah Carey, I believe. He's done well in show business as well. I'm talking about Richard Branson. Didn't you work with him? I didn't work with him. No. What I did was I got involved with a a portion of his empire called Virgin Unite. And what Virgin Unite does is it's 20 entrepreneurs from all around the world going and looking at all the things that he does philanthropically. And so I traveled to Ulusaba, his place in Africa where we did safaris. But before we did that, we went and visited a lot of the things that he's involved with and and all of that. And then I did another trip with Virgin Unite to Necker Island, the island that he owns. And it was a leadership uh, weekend of, you know, hearing from just some of the most amazing uh, speakers. We had Martin Luther King III. He spoke. Van Jones was a moderator and a speaker at that event. The ex-president of Colombia, Mr. Sanchez, I believe. These beautiful, passionate leaders came and spoke in the whole. It was about courageous leadership. It's just for me doing stuff like that. And yes, I did get to meet Richard. Of course, he's very involved when you go on those trips. He's there the whole time. And he is just very welcoming and very kind. And, you know, it was something I'm super grateful that I got to be a part of. But yeah, it's it's a learning, growing experience, and it's a chance to give back. And so that is that is my part in the Virgin Unite community. Yeah, it's really, like I said, for entrepreneurs and business owners, anybody who's doing philanthropic work, you know, can get involved in Virgin Unite. Is it a fair statement to say that you going to the junior college and becoming successful there and cheering and dancing and doing well in school for the first time, that gave you the confidence to go forward and become this extrovert that you became and get into show business? Did your education in that college make any difference to you at all? That's a great question. I don't think that my education. No, I don't think my education made any difference at all. You know, I think I was born with this extrovert personality. I came out seeking attention. I I say that attention is my first addiction. You know, I I came out dancing and and putting on shows, you know, running around my house at two, three years old in go-go boots. You know, I wanted to be Nancy Nancy Sinatra. Nancy Sinatra. That's right. That was me. Those boots were made for walking. I'd walk around in those boots and I'd put on shows and I did. I knew every Broadway song and I would just dance and sing all day long. I loved it. And so when I was ice skating, I got to play out a lot of that, a lot of that on the ice. And yeah, I think doing competition and ice skating and skating in front of a lot of people can give you a lot of confidence. Okay. Now here is the million dollar question right here. Oh boy. Get ready. Everybody hold on. That's right. When is it in your life that you knew at this point, I have to reinvent myself. I am no longer going to be the cover girl on Playboy. I am no longer going to get offers to be the centerfold. When did you know you had to reinvent Deborah to make Deborah what she is right now today? That came after my divorce, and it came when I really lost everything. And I mean everything. I really hit, and you know, some people call it a midlife crisis and maybe that's what it was. I don't know, but I think my divorce really brought me to my knees. I had never really thought about what that would look like, you know, to actually be divorced. And so the divorce, not having any money, having to work, 
And all of a sudden, I got thrown into kind of the business world. I got thrown into the world of reality, so to speak. And not not to say that the entertainment world is not reality, but I had to figure out what I was going to do to support my kids and kind of bring a paycheck in. And so my first, you know, I did a lot of little jobs here and there, but I started really the big, the big start for me was real estate. Did that for a couple of years, 2008, that took a complete dive for me because I was working in a second home market. And so I lost that job that I'd worked so hard to to do and be a part of. And so that went away. My kids went to go live with their dad. I had no money and I had to go back and live with my mother. And that to me was probably the darkest time because I had no idea, no idea at that time what I was going to do, how I was going to pull myself out of this. And I really start, and I pulled away from everybody at that time. You know, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't reach out because I was so embarrassed. You know, I was so embarrassed that I had lost everything. The thing that I lost that was so devastating was I lost myself. You know, I lost my self-esteem and I, and I couldn't get it. I just was like, where, what happened? You know, what happened to me? And I, I never thought that anything like that would, would happen. I always was kind of that person that when things would go wrong, I'd go, okay, well, this is how we're going to fix it and move on. And I couldn't fix it. My kids were in six eighth and ninth grade. Did you take them, the moms with you? No, they went to go live with their dad. We were, we, Mitch and I moved to Park City, Utah in 2003. And in 2008, the kids went back to live with him in California. And I moved to Ocala, Florida with my mom to figure out what I was going to do and how I was going to make money. I really pulled it together. It took a while. <laughs> it took a while, but you know, it was not easy. And and my my uh, Mitch was remarried at this time and he was expecting another child and my kids were living with him and his new wife and they were calling me every day and they were like, well, when are you coming back? When, when are we going to see you? When are, when? And I said, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And I really was. I, I spent probably two to three weeks in self-pity and like, oh my God, my life is over, you know, type of attitude. And then I gradually would get up and walk my mom's dog. And she lived in a 55 and over community. And the people that I met walking the dog every day, I became friends with and I met them and their dogs and I knew the names of everybody. And I'd come back and tell my mom what everybody in her neighborhood was doing. And and what those people didn't realize is they were saving my life. They really were. They Because my self-esteem was coming back because they would say things to me like, your mom must be so proud of you. And your mom must be so happy to have you here visiting. And I, I, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, if they only knew, you know, I'm sleeping on her couch. And, um, you know, our kids don't come visit. And then they tell me about their health issues and, and all of their things. And it just, just took me out of my head. And I felt like I was being of service to these people. And then I would go back and I'd get on the computer and I'd start looking for work. And the first thing I found was a I worked for a print company out of New York, which eventually led me back to California. So I my kids, I got my kids back in uh, August of 2010. They came back to live with me. So for almost two years, they were with their dad. And then while I was doing the print job, I reached out to a friend of mine in LA now that I was back in California. And he did our life insurance when I was married. And he was the number one broker in the United States. And I said, hey, if I refer you business, because I had referred him a lot of business in the past. And now that I had been in the business world, I knew that I could get paid for referrals. I didn't know that. I was just doing it for free all these years. And so I called him and I said, hey, if I refer you business, can I get a referral fee? And he said, why don't you get your license? So I spent my weekends studying for that test. And in 2010, I went and got my life insurance license, kind of started to weed out of the print business. And in 2000, July 2011, I became a full-time life agent. And by the end of 2011, I had become the number one agent for one of the companies that we were selling for. And so I'm not captive. I sell for a lot of different um, a lot of different carriers, and I had a lot of success in 11, 12, and 13. I was able to join the million-dollar roundtable and top of the table in my industry, and, and it was 
just because I dialed for dollars, you know, and what I is the million dollar round table? What is that? That is if you if you sell a million dollars worth of uh, life insurance, then you're eligible to join that, you know, so it's a small percentage of life insurance agents that are in that in that category. And you were in the top 5% of those sales individuals in that profession. The top 5%. Is that true? That is true. Well, now, for a lady that was wondering what her next job was going to be, no wonder you're advising women. And you have told women that look up to you that you have to do three things. Number one, I heard you say you had to have the willingness to take a risk or two or three. You got to take risks. Number two, you got to have a positive attitude. And number three, this is what you're known for as well. You never take no for an answer. Yeah, in sales. <laughs> Doesn't work too well in parenting, but uh, yeah, in sales, I what my phrase is, is no means maybe. And if you say, if I say that, I put that out there, usually somewhere along the way, something will come back around. I don't know when. I don't, I don't worry about it anymore. I just say next, I move on to the next and I say no means maybe. And because, you know, I stay in touch with a lot of people and maybe they said no to me six months ago, but I'll tell you what usually happens. They usually end up coming around and becoming my client or even better, they start referring business. And I have built a business off of referrals because we've built a reputation on just you know, the service that we provide. And so I get a lot of referrals. I have people text me all the time. Hey, are you still doing life insurance? I have a referral for you. What a beautiful gift. You know, what a beautiful gift that that I have created that, you know, that people still reach out and know that that's what I do. So it's kind of cool. In addition to your philanthropic work where you help the poor and the needy, et cetera, et cetera, you decided to help the women breakthrough who did not have the confidence because they had been beaten down. They lacked the opportunity in their their own hearts to stand up and say, I can do this. You, you're helping other women become strong. I think that's amazing. You know, I, I don't know that I specifically um, gear this message to women. I think it's for everybody, you know, I mean, men and women, I think, you know, we're going to get to places in our life that are going to be dark. They're going to be what next? What am I going to do now? And I think during this pandemic, I've heard a lot of stories. I've seen a lot of people in LA closing their doors. You know, the businesses come to an end and what do you do then? What happens next? You know, and I've been there. So I'm hoping that when I talk about some of the dark times that I've been through, that it helps everybody, not just women. But yeah, you know, I mean, I think if anything, you know, women starting out, I hope that the message that they get in their 20s is that they don't wait till they're in their 40s and 50s like I did. I hope, you know, they, they start getting this message sooner in life that, hey, you can do whatever you want. There, the abundance is available. There's nothing holding you back. I want you to talk very briefly to the woman who's looking up to you listening to this right now saying, well, she's had all this exposure and show business and playboy and everything. Everybody knew her from that. That's why she was able to sell and be in the top five of her profession. Tell them the <laughs> truth. What about lift that woman up who feels that she does not have your confidence? What are you going to tell her? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I can see how that would look a certain way, but it just goes right back to, you know, when, and it's not just me, but when people see successful people, they don't see the hard grit. They don't see the, them waking up at two 30 in the morning, turning on the computer, pulling out a yellow pad, writing on a whiteboard, crying, reading, studying, growing. They don't see all that. All they see is the success. And so what I say to that is, yeah, I've had lots of different successes in my life and I've had just as many failures. I've been knocked down to the point of not wanting to get, get back up. And I had to cross, you know, and my being on the cover of Playboy, I can tell you this right now, was very 
I was walking kind of a thin line when I got into business. I wasn't sure if I wanted people to know whether or not that was in my past, you know? So that was a little bit of a hurdle that I had to cross to be taken seriously. And then I realized, you know what? It doesn't matter because what I bring to the table is value. And so I think at the end of the day, to the woman out there listening, that we use all of our resources, no matter what they are. And everybody has resources somewhere. It's not just, you know, Playboy to me was a small part of my resource. You know, really the resources that I had were the relationship and the relationships that I had built throughout the years with different people in different groups, not just the entertainment world, but in the business world, in the philanthropic world, in the parenting world, all of those different relationships. I called everybody. I called everybody and I told them, this is what I'm doing now. And I asked for their business. And I did not take it personally. If they said no, I called them in a couple months. And I said, hey, I'm just checking back with you to see how you're doing. And if you're still happy with who you're doing business with. And I just kept going and kept going and kept going until I had more and more momentum. And through doing those actions, that's where the confidence comes. Because I'm no expert in life insurance. Okay. What I'm an expert in is how I can add value to people's lives, how I can help them protect the ones they love from unexpected life events. That's what I really do. If somebody you know, wants to get a hold of Deborah Driggs, where do they go? How do they do it? So if they want to follow my journey during the pandemic, I wrote a book and I'm I'm in the process of deciding how I'm going to distribute that book right now. So if they want to follow my journey, it's going to be on Instagram. And it's my name, Deborah Driggs, and I am going to be posting all of it. And then on Instagram is going to be a link to my website. And on my website will be all sorts of information where they can email me, etc. Very, very good. Well, Deborah, you certainly have been an inspiration. You are a real fun person. I've enjoyed this interview immensely. You have crawled out of the doldrums and done so well. Thank you, Deborah, for coming on. I cannot say how much I appreciate it. I'd love to have you back sometime if you'd like to come back. Can we maybe take that and do it? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me your time. And yes, when my book comes out, I would love to come back. Oh, I'd be happy to have you back. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, I think before we go over time, I'm just going to have Deborah say, Good night, Deborah. Good night, Deborah. <laughs> there we are, ladies and gentlemen. My blood runs cold. My memory has just been sold. My angel, Deborah Driggs, is the centerfold on Playboy. April 1990, she was the cover girl. She was Miss March and the centerfold also in 1990. What an intelligent lady who has gone the total opposite of what she was as the cover girl and has become successful in business. I'm proud of her. Everyone's proud of her. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun. Fun, but I've got to run. On behalf of myself and Deborah Driggs, we're going to say goodbye. Have a good week, everyone. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking. Reading, studying, growing, they don't see all that. All they see is the success, the success, the success. The success. The success.